The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Here around MLK Day, because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for some reason, has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest, biggest in the United States Congress, he had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun every day. We rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, because we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running. It's time for some action now. Historical progressions, generations march in succession through 400 years. Hate, blood, sweat, and tears, and counting. The resistance is mounting. Hi, good evening. I'm Sharon Hinton, your host here on Another Level. Um, we have some interesting things to talk about. And I will be talking to you about them. We've got some stuff coming up, some programs coming up, some trips coming up, and some trips that we just had. We're going to be talking about Frederick Douglass and the voice of freedom. Next month, June, we will have Juneteenth. We're not talking about Juneteenth right now because we'll be talking about that during June. What we will be talking about is the current state of education, the current state of the black community, in the black community, hopefully, People from the black community and other communities can call up, comment, and give us a call. Here, I'm your host, Sharon Hinton. Stay tuned so you can get some information to help build this nation. We'll be right back. Famed author Frederick Douglass worked tirelessly as an abolitionist and an advocate for equal rights. You can't talk about the history of civil rights in this country without talking about Frederick Douglass. Long before Dr. King, the civil rights movement, here's a man who was talking about basic dignity for people in this country. Born into slavery in Talbot County, Maryland around 1818, Frederick Douglass became educated first through his master's wife and eventually on his own. Douglas escaped slavery in 1838 by fleeing to New York and became a preacher the following year. Certainly, during Douglas's time, literacy for Africans was absolutely forbidden. In fact, it was very clear that once Africans could read and write, many wrote their own passes, which allowed them to move from place to place, and obviously this was disruptive to a very repressive system. After his anti-slavery lectures caught the attention of William Lloyd Garrison, the editor of the abolitionist paper, The Liberator, Douglas began touring the United States as a speaker with the American Anti-Slavery Society. Many whites refused to believe that Frederick Douglass had ever been a slave because he was so obviously intelligent, he was such a powerful speaker. In 1845, Douglass wrote and published his first autobiography entitled Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Although the book was a U.S. bestseller, Douglass was forced to live in Europe for two years to evade recapture. 
He ultimately purchased his freedom in 1847. People were shocked about Frederick Douglass, an ex-slave, writing his autobiography. And it was so poignant, and it was such a bird's eye view of what was going on on the plantation. He put it in very plain language, and it was just a powerful testimony of why slavery needed to end in our country. Douglass became the only African American to attend the first women's rights convention in 1848. And by 1861, Douglass was famous nationwide advising both President Lincoln and Johnson on the welfare of African Americans. By any measure, Frederick Douglass was a real American hero. He was a public intellectual, he was a statesman, he was an activist, and his life and his political commitment were dedicated to human rights, not just to civil rights or to the end of slavery. During his lifetime, Douglass was U.S. Ambassador to the Dominican Republic. And in 1872, he became the first African-American to appear on a presidential ballot when he was nominated as vice president. Frederick Douglass died on February 20th, 1895 from natural causes. Thank you so much. We're gonna be uh, showing clips regarding Frederick Douglass um, throughout this show. Uh, originally the founder of the Hero Nurturing Center, Miss Judith Foster was going to be here. There was an emergency, so we will have her on at another show. Um, so we'll be giving you information. The Hero Nurturing Center is going to present the Walking the Road to Resilience with Frederick Douglass. It's a kickoff event Saturday, June 17th from 11 to 1 p.m. at the Boston Nature Center, which is 500 Walk Hill Street in Mattapan. And to celebrate Juneteenth with public readings and music, food and fun, um, it's a nine-week resilience workshop series, a consecutive Saturday is 11 to 1. So it starts July 8th, July 15th, the 22nd, 29th, August 5th, August 12th, August 19th, August 26th to September 2nd. It's free, but registration is required. It's limited to 10 participants. Um, gas or transit support is available. Every workshop will include a nature healing walk open to the public. And there's a graduation Saturday, September 9th from 11 to 1. So Ms. Jude Foster will be here at a follow-up, uh, a makeup program as opposed to today. But we will be giving you information about Frederick Douglass. Anyway, let's go back. So this book that I'm showing you that's in front of me, I'm going to take off my glasses for now. Um, it's a book that I just bought this Saturday, this weekend, at an event um, that was put together collaborative, collaboratively by Ujima and also BECMA. BECMA is the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. So they were offering um, an African-American museum tour, a business. It was called the Martha's Vineyard Black Business Tour. And it was designed to bring people together in small businesses and different businesses to network and also enjoy each other's company. And for the whole day, we went this Saturday and it was raining um, some of the day, but it was kind of cold, it was nice warm rain. Um, the conversation was great. We went to a black restaurant there, a uh, Caribbean restaurant there, and um, we had African-American tours and we spent some money in black businesses. Now there's a friend of mine, I'm talking kind of fast, let me slow down, because we're gonna be here for 50 minutes. Cindy Diggs, over the um, pandemic, would have what she was called staycations, or um, what was the other term she used? I'm not thinking about the other term that she used, but staycations was one of them. And basically, she and um, several other people, but mostly her, I remember, 
got people together that she knew to spend money in black businesses, to keep these businesses afloat. So this Saturday had that in mind, to actually on Martha's Vineyard to go to uh, various locations and uh, businesses in Martha's Vineyard and spend money. And there were about 30 of us there. There would have been more, but it was raining and it was kind of cold. And some people decided that, you know, they had better things to do, I guess, that they didn't go. But I met a lot of people, a lot of young people. There was great networking going on. And this book that I got, Lighting the Trail, The African-American Heritage of Martha's Vineyard. I've been to Martha's Vineyard and down the Cape and everything, but I learned so many different things about where the black businesses were, where the housing was, the whole history. And I honestly learned a whole lot I did not know. Um, there are beautiful pictures in this book. So we met at Dudley, excuse me, Nubian Square. We met at Nubian Square, took a bus down to um, Woods Hole, and then we took a ferry um, to Woods Hole and um, enjoyed the whole day. And we came back about nine o'clock at night. So we, we left in the bus about 7.30 in the morning and we had breakfast um, together such as it was, like a, it wasn't really breakfast breakfast, like, you know, shrimp and grits kind of a thing. But it was um, healthy and we got to meet each other and then the bus ride was maybe about an hour or so. And the ferry ride was maybe about 40 minutes or so and then we were in um, Martha's Vineyard, which was interesting because the pandemic has been about three years or so, so three and a half years. And I haven't been there for a while. Uh, bustling, beautiful, um, my daughter bought me these earrings. You can't really see them, not these. These I got from uh, The Roots, Back to The Roots in Grove Hall, and I'm gonna plug them because it's a black business. Again, so tonight, I want you to call up and tell me, with the initiative that's happening in Boston towards affordable housing, especially for those of you who are shopping in the community, in Boston, are you spending money in the black community? And if you are, where are you going? Because I want to give a shout out to businesses. There's a lot of businesses that are starting to open back up, but there's also businesses that are closing. I remember growing up in Boston and pretty much the length of Blue Hill Avenue from Mattapan Square down to Nubian Square, and then even further down, but at least that breadth, there were businesses on both sides of the street. A lot of them weren't necessarily black businesses, but there were businesses. Now, if you travel Blue Hill Avenue, it's mostly housing. There's a couple of businesses, but then it's um, not the same. So when I grew up on Blue Hill Avenue, around there, Blue Hill Avenue, Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, there were hardware stores, there were delicatessens, there were uh, movie theaters, there were uh, shopping marks, there was Roxy's, there was right on Blue Hill Avenue, there was A&P, and there was also Warren Street. So there are businesses on Warren Street, Ferdinand, Ferdinand's was a huge department store. It is now the bowling building. And speaking of bowling, I learned on this Martha's Vineyard trip that the bowlings actually own a house. They still own it, a house on Martha's Vineyard. And so on our tour, we learned terms that I had heard, but not in the way that it was discussed to us. So it was legacy uh, buildings, so le legacy homes. So basically you had a home, it was in a family, it was started by a black family, owned by a black family, 
and still remains in that family. Then you had fa uh, legacy uh, homes that used to be owned by that family, no longer owned by that family, but still owned by a black family. And then you have legacy homes that used to be owned by a black family, no longer owned by a black family. We've got a phone caller here. Phone caller, can you give me your name, where you're calling from, and your comment or your question? Hello? My name is Anthony. I'm calling for welfare. I have a comment, too. Yes. And my comment goes like this. I live in Wasp Bay, and yet I don't see any quote-unquote black community here. And when it comes to the housing issue for Massachusetts, for Boston in general, I don't see the mayor or any of the city councilors showing me how they got their homes. Because like the old pauper said, if you give a person a fish, you feed that person for a day. If you teach that person how to fish, you feed that person for a lifetime. And so far, I don't see none of the city councilors or the mayor is teaching me how to fish. All they're just doing is just giving me a fish, which is sad because I work at a very low minimum wage job, and I am saving as much as I can, and yet I don't hear anything from the politicians saying that it's going to make it easier to for me to have a home, I mean, to buy a home in Boston, even though they want to keep future, the next generation and the current generation here in the city for obvious reasons. So, so have you ever bought a home? Have you, do you own, you don't own a home now, right? No. Have you ever owned a home here? Never. But you want to buy a home here? Yes. Um, were you raised in Boston and that's why you want to stay here? Yes. And so what, have you gone to any of the um, first time home buyers? Because I know there's first time home buyers uh, the city of Boston, I think it's still called Home Center, and it, t it takes you through all of the steps of buying a home um, and what you need to do it. Now, I went through that, and um, this was way before the pandemic, right? And so there was NACA, N-A-C-A, that's right in Jackson Square, and they do the same thing with first-time home buyers, but you can buy homes outside of Boston. The Home Center at Boston is just for if you want to buy something in around Boston. Have you... Do you know about that? Have you tried to get in touch with them? This is my first time hearing about it, too. Oh, wow. So, so we are also going to be doing a program with um, a gentleman um, who was the first black head of the real estate board in Boston. Um, I've got some shows uh, in June scheduled with him, and he's going to bring on a lawyer, a real estate lawyer, to actually walk us through what that means and what it means if you own property to try to keep a hold of your property and keep it in your family or to, I mean, it's that, so that's a homeowner, but then it's income property, right? Because then you've got um, the Airbnb situation and some cities have certain regulations and laws now if you want to be able to rent out your property. And I was just looking at something on social media today where um, I think it was California or Nevada, I forget, but it wasn't here, it was out west. This squatter, uh, Actually, they started out as an Airbnb, um, you know, a visitor, but then they stayed in the place as a squatter. And so around the country, different landlords are thinking about whether or not they even want to do that in income property because of all the legalities and, and the liabilities. And some people are just unscrupulous. They're doing some kind of wild and crazy things. A lot of people 
um, during the pandemic, there was that moratorium on um, evictions. But now the moratoriums are over. I think they, they were over in November of last year, 2022. And so I know personally of some landlords who are trying to get their tenants to pay up. And over the pandemic, which was about three years, some people weren't paying it. So we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars that are owned, owned to owners, homeowners. And these are not development companies. These are individual homeowners who had to keep paying their mortgage and keep paying their, you know, keep their properties up who now are um, in jeopardy of losing their properties because they're not getting money back from their tenants. So I know that there's, um, and then also Boston, I think is top three. It's always kind of top three in the most expensive place to live in the country. And at one point, I think about six months ago, Boston was the most expensive city to live in in the world, which is crazy. So I know that there are places that used to be called the hood that you have to pay anywhere from 25 to $3,000 a month to get a two-bedroom apartment and not really a big apartment. Are you renting now? I have to make one quick correction. Boston ranks number two in the most expensive city in the nation. Of course, New York is always going to be number one regardless. So. It's number two. That's right. And it goes back and forth between Boston, San Francisco, and New York, those three being the most expensive place. So are you renting now? Yes. And how much, I'm just, I'm getting your business now because you called me, so thank you. How much are you paying per month for rent? $2,800. For a one-bedroom, two-bedroom? One. You're paying $2,800 for a one-bedroom apartment? Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy to me. But that's what the going rate is, right? Yes. Uh, so... So you're thinking about buying a house because it makes more sense. If you're going to spend that money, then you should own it. Well, actually, when it comes to buying a house, I'm more of a long-term person because last time I checked, the whole purpose of having a house is to live in to make it a home. And a lot of people that I notice um, that are homeowners that got in maybe about 10, 15 years ago, what they're paying, if they got a decent uh, uh, mortgage deal, because the interest rates were lower then, um, they're not paying anywhere near $2,800 or $3,000 a month for their mortgage for a whole house in land. And you're paying that for just a one bedroom? Okay. Yep. So not the next show, but the show after, two shows from now, which will be about mm, four weeks from now, we're going to have this person who is going to talk to us about real estate and owning homes and a real estate attorney. So that's um, any, so right now, and it was just in the newspaper, um, Mayor Wu is talking about giving free, free land to developers, free land to developers. And I think there's about 150 lots to be able to build affordable housing. How do you feel about that? Knowing that you're just trying to buy a house or something, and she's talking about giving free land to developers to develop so-called affordable housing, which may end up being $2,800 to $3,500 a month. How do you feel about her giving free land away to developers? That she doesn't care about black people, and then she's doing it because of political reasons, because she knows she's going to get reelected, and this gives her a nice, easy political point to score with the developers, because the developers are the ones that are the, let's call it what it is, money makers. They need the land and the city to give them what they need. But at the same time, this so-called affordable housing, nobody 
from the state to the city level, it really breaking it down for low-income people for like I to understand. Because you, you could throw a number at me, and I still want to understand what you're talking about. You got to not dumb it down, but be smart enough to let me know how much I'm actually paying where I live and making sure that if I can get this affordable house, quote-unquote, that I won't end up being broke or being homeless within one or two years. Oh, my God. Um, so if you could talk to Mayor Wu right now, what would you tell her? Stop playing games with black people, Will. Wow. That's pretty deep. Um, so during the, during the period where we're going to have recordings about Frederick Douglass, there are a series, but you can actually go on the city of Boston website and the mayor's um, department. She has another series of um, meeting the mayor in the different neighborhoods. And um, it might have been in the banner, too, but I, I saw it. I'm trying to think. I'm in so many different places. I'm trying to think of where I saw this listing, but it definitely has to be on the city of Boston website. So I'm encouraging everybody, you um, and everybody to show up at these coffee hours in the morning or coffee hours with the mayor and talk to her face to face about how you feel. I think she needs to, your constituency, um, you need to talk to her face to face. And uh, I, I call her, I talked to her. The last time I saw Mayor Wu was at um, Mel King's wake, face to face. A lot of people were there. Um, former Mayor Flynn was there. Uh, Ed Markey was there. All those politicians were there. And Boston is not a large place. It's not New York. It's, pretty, it's a big town. It's a small city. It's a big town. If you're out and about, and this is an election year, so all of your city councilors, at-large city councilors, district city councilors are running for re-election. They're your representatives. Let them know how you feel. I encourage you. Any last words before we let you go? And again, I had to make another quick correction. And no, I'm not trying to disrespect you or make you feel bad on TV. But Councilor Frank Baker will not won this election cycle. So we have 12 city councilors who are running again, not 13, And I heard, well, I don't know all of the people, but I was talking to someone yesterday, and I think they said there are at least eight people that are, that are signing up, getting signatures to run for Frank Baker's spot. Now, yes, that's true, too. So thank you so much for your phone call. I appreciate you. and appreciate your support. Um, wow. So there's a lot of things to talk about tonight. My guest is not here. We had to reschedule her. And we're talking about the Frederick Douglass reading that she's going to be doing starting in July all the way through uh, September, the beginning of September, and um, weekly at the Boston Nature Center, and um, sponsored by Judith Foster and the Hero uh, Nurturing Center. That's going to be happening, and you can find out all that information. I don't know if you can, yeah, if you can scan that code, you can find out more information and actually bring it to the website. We are going to run another clip about the illustrious statesman, Frederick Douglass, that you may or may not have known, and we'll be right back here on another level, giving you information to build our nation. We'll be right back. The first thing to understand about Douglass is that he spent 20 years as a slave, both on the eastern shore of Maryland and in Baltimore. He suffered or experienced virtually all the physical and psychological traumas and scarring that slavery could wreck upon a human being. 
He also had the good fortune of being sent by his owner, Thomas Auld, to Baltimore, to a city, to an urban area where he not only found work in the docks, although dangerous work, but he was able to expand his literacy and expand his worldview and see the sailing ships and make friendships in the streets of Baltimore, not only with young white boys, but with older black preachers and eventually with the free black community of Baltimore. But Douglas left slavery with a rage in his heart, a scarring in his soul that he needed to vent and expend uh, throughout, frankly, most of the rest of his life. And he was very lucky, I would argue, that he was able to do this through language. He didn't have to do it through physical violence. Because he became such a master of words, he was able to expend that rage in his soul, in his speaking and in his writing. Millions of Americans saw their country, their story, through the ancient biblical story. But Douglas made the most of it. And he delivered few speeches that didn't have direct lines or paraphrases from especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So only through those kinds of biblical stories could Douglas tell the story of his own people. Douglas's entire family went to war. He recruited two of his sons, Lewis and Charles, into the famous 54th Massachusetts Regiment. His third son, Frederick Jr., uh, enlisted to be a recruiter of black troops in the lower Mississippi Valley. And his whole family, in effect, was at war by 1863, whatever the outcome might be. Uh, and for Douglas, this war was what he had dreamed of, and its results also were what he had dreamed of. Are you interested in learning to create television and web programming? Boston Neighborhood Network has what you need in our hybrid studio production class. Learn how to build a production in eight sessions. For more information, please head over to bnnmedia.org backslash services backslash workshops. Interested in becoming a radio DJ? Boston Neighborhood Network's 102.9 FM is offering a course of radio production that can get you started. For more information, please head over to bnnmedia.org backslash services backslash workshops. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey was born in February of 1818 on Maryland's eastern shore. Son of a slave, Frederick spent the majority of his childhood with his aunt and grandparents, seeing his mother only four or five times before her death when he was seven. During his childhood, he was exposed to brutal slavery, including whippings. Only eight years old, Frederick was auctioned off to a carpenter living in Baltimore. It is at this point that Douglas first read of the abolitionist movement, later saying, It laid the foundation and opened the gateway to all my subsequent prosperity. Douglas was sold to a slave breaker by the name of Edward Covey, who was notoriously brutal. Douglas was hardly fed and whipped every day. On January 1st, 1836, Douglas made a resolution that he would be free by the end of the year. 
He planned an escape, but in early April, he was jailed after his plan was discovered. Two years later, on September 3rd, 1838, Douglas finally was able to escape and traveled by train, steamboat, then train again to New York. Several weeks later, he traveled to New Bedford in Massachusetts. Frederick married a woman who he had met when he was a slave in Baltimore. It is at this time that he changed his name from Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey to Frederick Douglass. Living under his new name, Douglass started to read again, he joined a black church, and even attended abolitionist meetings. In 1841, Douglass saw William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist, speak at the Bristol Anti-Slavery Society's annual meeting. Douglas was moved by Garrison's speech, later saying, No face and form ever impressed me with such sentiments as did those of William Lloyd Garrison. The two became friends, and at age 23, a few days later, Douglas spoke at the Nantucket Anti-Slavery Society's annual convention. His speech about his life as a slave was moving and was spoken in a very eloquent manner. Impressed by the speech, Members of the society asked Douglas to become a permanent member. Later, Douglas published a narrative about his life as a slave. People warned him that this was dangerous because he was still technically an escaped slave. As a key member of the anti-slavery society, Douglas traveled to Europe giving speeches about his life as a slave. During his tour in Europe, he first went to London, then to Edinburgh, and finally Dublin before returning home. When he returned home, he published his first issue of the North Star. This four-page weekly newspaper was dedicated to the current events surrounding the anti-slavery society and abolitionist movement. Over the years, the views of Douglas and Garrison ultimately diverged. Garrison began to represent the more radical abolitionists. He denounced churches, political parties, even voting. He also believed that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. In addition, Frederick Douglass was becoming more of an independent thinker. For example, at one of his speeches in Syracuse, he said, The Constitution could be wielded in behalf of emancipation. Douglass also did not advocate the dissolution of the Union, since it would isolate slaves in the South. This difference in opinion led to a bitter dispute between Garrison and Douglass. Another famous abolitionist, Harry Beecher Stowe, tried to reconcile the differences between the two by sending a letter to William Lord Garrison. Sadly, the dispute continued through the Civil War. During the Civil War, Douglas conferred with Abraham Lincoln and helped recruit African Americans for the Union Army. After the war, Douglas would continue to fight for the rights of women and African Americans alike. On February 20th, 1895, Douglas attended a meeting with the National Council of Women in Washington, D.C. After the presentation, he was given a standing ovation by the audience. Shortly after he returned home, Douglas died of a heart attack or a stroke. Frederick Douglass led a life dedicated to the abolishment of slavery and to the promotion of black rights and women's rights. He was a gifted orator who used his word to change the minds of many.
Welcome back. Um, hopefully you've learned um, a lot more about Frederick Douglass. There are other clips that I have that I won't show tonight. I will wait until our guest, Judith Foster, who's the founder of the Hero Nurturing Center, comes here at a rescheduled program and she can talk about her nature walks. I want to shift a little bit, but I want to use one last quote from Frederick Douglass. A lot of you may have seen this or heard this. It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. That was Frederick Douglass. Um, this African-American heritage of Martha's Vineyard book that I bought, I've been flipping through it, and I, and I love it. I absolutely love it. And um, wonderful black and white pictures. I can't show them to you right now because it wouldn't be fair. We need to have close-ups and everything. This is the book. I'm encouraging everyone. Um, there was actually a Spike Lee movie, The Inkwell. And on the tour, the, um, our tour guide was amazing. Um, originally, he was from New Jersey, Teaneck, New Jersey, and from Harlem. He moved his family down to um, Martha's Vineyard, and they have the African-American uh, Heritage Tour. Heritage Tour, I think that's what they said on the side of the van. But they actually have regular tours there. It was wonderful. It was about 90 minutes or so. And then it ended in, um, well, that part of the tour was at a Caribbean uh, restaurant that we went to that was really good food. So that piece right there, I encourage you to Google it. You can look at the African-American Heritage Trail tour in Martha's Vineyard and schedule it and get your group to go down there, all the teachers and the educators that I know of. Um, it's a wonderful trip. It's a beautiful island. It's not expensive. And the school department should have money for that. If they don't, then somebody has the money for that, and you can also make arrangements for group trips. Um, the last caller, we talked about the mayor. And so I Googled it during the time that you guys were watching this piece, the 2023 Neighborhood Coffee Hours. The coffee hours give residents the chance to speak with the mayor and staff from city departments. Through these discussions, the mayor looks forward to hearing how the city of Boston can improve upon local parks, public areas, and city services. Coffee hours are held from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. It's only an hour, unless otherwise noted. You can learn more about individual events. Um, mayor Wu's neighborhood coffee hours are a unique opportunity to speak directly to her. Duncan will be on site. They're not paying me. I'm just letting you know. But let me tell you about the, um, the dates, and you can see them on your screen. Um, the next date is May 24th, Neighborhood Coffee Hour in the North End. May 25th, Neighborhood Coffee Hour in the South End. May 31st, a Neighborhood Coffee Hour in Charlestown. June 1st, Neighborhood Coffee Hour in Hyde Park, or if you're from Boston, Hyde Park. Uh, June 8th, Neighborhood Coffee Hour in Mattapan. June 13th, a Neighborhood Coffee Hour in Fenway, Kenmore. June 14th, Neighborhood Coffee Hour in West Roxbury. June 16th, Neighborhood Coffee, Coffee Hour in Jamaica Plain. June 20th, a Neighborhood Coffee Hour in Mission Hill. And June 22nd, the last of those meetings is the Neighborhood Coffee Hour in Back Bay, Beacon Hill. So you can go um, on the mayor's website, on the boston.gov website. Um, what else do I need to show you? Yes, you can go on the website. You can also look at the, you can make some comments on the page. But there's nothing like showing up and talking to your elected official face to face. <clears throat> and I can't see you face to face tonight, but you can definitely call me. 
Let's get the phone, call, phone number up there and call me and tell me what you think about the current state of Boston and Black Boston. Recently, um, the resignation of Rachel Rollins, the former U.S. Attorney General from Massachusetts, has resigned. And now um, City Councilor, at large City Councilor Aaron Mur Murphy and other people are calling for the resignation of District City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo because of uh, documented conversations between, well, I guess I could say former U.S. Attorney, um, District Attorney Rachel Rollins now, because I guess yesterday or today she submitted her resignation to President Biden. And there's already discussions about who's going to take her place. The person that takes her place won't have been, will not have been elected by the people. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see who the powers that be designate to take her position and how that's going to roll out. Are they going to have a special election? Is it going to be another appointment? Because she actually, there was a 50-50 vote for her in the Senate, I believe. And um, Vice President Kamala Harris was the deciding vote so that Rachel Rollins became the U.S. District Attorney for Massachusetts. And, um, oh, man, my girl Rachel, another one bites the dust. It's, it's sad. It's really sad. If you can keep the number up there, that would be really great. Um, it, it's sad when you see, you know, Monica Cannon Grant, who did a lot of great work in the community and fighting for her freedom. Um, her husband recently died. He was killed in a motorcycle accident. Both of them had been indicted. And she now has six kids, and she's fighting this battle on her own. You know, there's nobody perfect except for God. Neither one of these people are God. Um, and I just, my heart hurts when I see black women going through this. Um, yes, people make mistakes. My theory, and it's only a theory, I have not talked to Rachel Rollins or anybody in her administration about it, but when I look at this playing out in the press, it makes me wonder, were there people that were really mentoring her about the, the hazards of being a black woman in that spot, especially when you're the first one and you're the only one. And for those of us who have had to navigate those spaces, um, there are hazards everywhere. And, and, and unless you have a lighthouse or some kind of buoy letting you know danger, danger, stranger, danger, danger, I'm not sure that you could go through a situation like that unscathed and not making mistakes. Yes, in the news media, they were saying her staff was there were members of her staff that were warning her not to show up at certain political events, and she did it anyway. As a person that's in the news media, there's ways that you can write things to make people look like um, the next coming of the Messiah or Adolf Hitler. Be so there's different interpretations and bias and slants that you can give stories, um, no, matter how, no matter how you present the story. So this is ongoing. Um, this is an election year for at-large city councilors and district city councilors. It's going to be interesting because I think at this point in district, in, in, in um, Ricardo Arroyo's district, there wasn't really a strong contender. And now let's see what happened because this is, unfold, this is unfurling and unfolding as we speak right now. What's going to happen in politics? What's going to happen that's going to shift um, in the, amongst the constituency that Ricardo, city councilor, district city councilor, Ricardo Arroyo uh, represents because he would be going for re-election. This is not his first time. And he's coming from a family dynasty 
excuse me, of, of elected officials. His dad is still an elected official. Um, Felix Arroyo Sr., his brother, was an elected official and actually ran for mayor, Felix Arroyo Jr. And now Ricardo Arroyo, who's an attorney, um, who's the current district uh, city councilor for um, Hyde Park and, and that district right there, it's like, what's going to happen? And what does it mean for uh, people of color? Hyde Park right now has, I believe, 70% um, people of color and the highest percentage of immigrant population in all of the districts in the city of Boston. And then also Frank Baker, who is um, no longer running. He's not running for a re-election, but he was one of the four city councilors who were fighting against the redistrict, redistricting of, of um, that particular district for his district, Dorchester, heavily, heavily um, non-white. And um, that decision was made to redistrict that area and by the city councilor. And then the Supreme Court struck it down. So now the mayor, Mayor Wu, is saying that she's going to step in and try to help the city councilors navigate that. And it's making me uh, nervous in a little bit because the mayor has ignored the non-binding referendum that over 99,000 people voted for in the previous election to go back to an elected school committee from an appointed school committee. And she hasn't done anything on that. Um, yes, it's a non-binding referendum, but over 99,000 people voted for that. And to continue to ignore that and appoint people to the school committee um, and have discussions around education with, with the Department of Elementary Secondary Education and negotiating these union contracts, it makes you wonder, are you really elected by the people for the people and what people are you talking about? Um, that's just my opinion. I'm not an elected official, but I am an educator. And I am on a lot of these committees, and I am in a lot of these hearings, and I am in a lot of these meetings that are held during the day when most people, especially parents, are working. Uh, the superintendent, uh, Skipper, we've had meetings with Superintendent Skipper. Uh, there's a coalition of educational advocacy groups around special education, around um, school safety. A couple of weeks ago, we actually met with Superintendent Skipper in terms of the $30 million that's proposed to put security cameras uh, we have somebody on the phone. Um, give me, oh, wow. Uh, thank you for calling in. Give me your name and where you're calling from and your question and comment, please. So I'm not going to say my name, but I'm just curious. It, it, I, as I'm listening to you and, you know, the whole thing with Rachel Rollins or, you know, Aurora, and yes, she was put, you know, as the Attorney General. It's totally different than a state, but... One of the things is you've had many, many, um, and I know this from Boston, you, you've had Gloria, uh, Gloria Fox, you've had other people, um, Charles Yancey, or different people. So are we saying that we're making, um, people make mistakes, like you said, right? So clearly, mistakes were made. But do we make excuses for them just because they're black? Because it was something that you, you said that, well, you know, when we're, you know, um, I just I just feel that people should be held accountable. I don't care what race they are. There are many white politicians, Salda Macy, who I love dearly, who made a major mistake, you know, went through. So I, I just guess for me it's saying, you know, do we make excuses just because of their color? Like, no. Like, if if she did some of the things that, you know, we know people, and, and, and 
when we're in places and we'll say to our friends, well, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. Or sometimes that's going to come back to haunt us. And if this is the case, then she needs to be, or whoever, people would need to be held accountable. So I'm just asking, when you said because of her, like, are we making excuses because of the color that she is? I just find sometimes that happens. So do you think we should make excuses? Well, I don't think we need to. I think people need to be held accountable, period, for our actions. We've made mistakes. God knows I've made over and beyond mistakes. But I need to take accountability, and I don't need to just think that someone's coming after me because of the color of my skin. Now, does that happen? Yes. But do we then not hold someone accountable because of? I, I, I don't. I don't know that we should do that. And, and I'm going to give an example. So let's say someone does something and it's like, oh, um, well, that, they, that happened because they were, like they did something awful, but we're not going to hold them accountable because of the color of the skin. And, and I find sometimes on social media you'll see that. Well, if he wasn't a black man, but the bottom line, or a black woman, they did it. So that's just my question. So, and I don't know if it's a question opposed to a statement. So, it, so I think you made a statement and there's a question. And um, again, this is opinions. Everybody's got one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So throughout the history of this country, there have always, there's always been a double standard, right? Absolutely. Especially when it came to race. And there are decades, literally centuries, of um, jury nullification. Recently, the woman who accused uh, Emmett Till of um, whistling at her, and it caused his death. A 14-year-old caused his death. She was, never held she was never held accountable for that. And even though um, a year ago evidence was brought up, there was an attempt to make her accountable for that, you know, false witness or whatever, and um, sheriffs and law enforcement people said, oh, no, and they made excuses. And so as, as, a, pers as a black person in this country, mm -hmm. Um, there's too many incidences of when someone's race um, changed the decision to mm -hmm. the injustice um, and the detriment in the life of someone else, the life and or imprisonment. And it still happens. There's documented uh, evidence, data, research mm -hmm. that shows that even in the school to prison pipeline, if you're dark skin, if you're African-American, uh, you will be punitively uh, disciplined more so than somebody else. And when I say somebody else, it, couldn't it, it might not necessarily just be a Caucasian. It could be Asian or um, Latino. So we already know that that happens. Now, should that continue to happen? No. Mm -hmm. But, you know, no, you, when you're looking at the fairness and the reality of it, she is or was, well, she still is because she's still a lawyer, supposed to be one of those people that upholds the law and upholds the standards. And she was trying to change some of the um, ways that people were being um, arrested and or incarcerated. And so there were 15, when she came into office, there were 15 different infractions or inf offenses that she said the Department of Justice is no longer going to require incarceration or whatever, and you could actually pay a fine or whatever and not go to prison, not go to jail or whatever, right? She was trying to do something good, but in the process of her doing good, she did something bad in her office. She mm -hmm. did something that was not a court, that was unlawful, deemed unlawful, mm -hmm. and, and triggered an investigation, and then there's, you know, these texts and everything. Should someone um, 
Should someone not be found guilty based on their race? Well, that's already been happening and it continues to happen in this country, but should we do the same thing? Um, no, but we should also take into it, I think no, but we should also take into it an account about how you can course correct that particular situation so that you know it's supposed to be liberty and justice for all. That has never been the case. Even we the people only meant we the white people that own, we the white men that own property. It didn't even talk about women, never mind the slaves, um, enslaved people. So when we, you know the history of this country in terms of standards has always been this um, sliding scale depending on who you are, I think that needs to be taken into consideration, but also to correct it so that it becomes liberty and justice for all, which it hasn't been, it has never been. It still is not that. In her particular and case... Mm -hmm. and, and that's a very true statement that you're saying. I mean, if you look at the whole thing with the, the basketball player. So Which basketball so, player? Because there's been a few. The, the, the young girl who did the whole hand gesture thing, but then when the black girl did it, it was, it was you know, she was a thug, and she was this, and she was that. When the white girl did it, it was, oh, she's just passionate for her sport. But my whole thing, and I hope that at some point we get to, and you said it, where we hold people to the same standards no matter what the colors they are. And my hope in the future for this country is that we start to get away from, you know, we start looking at individuals for who they are, not what race they are. Mm. And sadly, that's, you know, it just continues, the cycle continues, and, and my goal and my prayer is to hopefully one day bring where we start judging people for who they are, not what race they are. Right, and, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Right. That's the there dream, right? Yeah, that's the dream. And, and hopefully, you know, somewhere down the road we could get there. But I appreciate you, and thank you for all that you do for this city. Thank you. Thank God you. bless you. Thank you so much. That was, that was very insightful. That was very thoughtful. Thank you so much. Um, and, and we're down to like the last four minutes of this program, which is what I hate because I could, you know, my crew laughs at me, my directors. I said, I could talk a dog off a meat wagon. It doesn't take, you know, if my guests don't show up and stuff, it's like, okay, we're still going. Um, there's a couple other things when we're talking about standards that I want to bring up. And there's a, there's a flyer, um, a very good friend of mine, Professor Dr. Tony Vandermeer is fighting for his career. He and uh, Professor uh, Jemadari, they are at UMass Boston. They are tenured professors at UMass fighting for their political life. They actually received awards this past year. I believe it was from the chancellor's office um, as being distinguished faculty. But now uh, the, the department, the African Studies Department they're representing at UMass Boston is once again being threatened with um, being gutted and then being pushed out of their job. So if you can look at the information in the bottom, I'm encouraging you to support these brothers. These brothers have set the standards. When you're talking about setting the standards of quality education, I have known Tony Vandermeer, Menelik, I've known Menelik since before he was a professor at Northeastern University, like decades I've known him. He has always, and he does regular visits to Cuba, he's always expanded um, his knowledge base as well as the students that come underneath him and any of his colleagues. He needs our help right now to maintain the integrity of the Africanist, <coughs> excuse me, studies department at UMass Boston, call the administration, 
Say that you support these brothers. These brothers are fighting to be able to hire the other faculty, black faculty in the African Canada Studies Department, just like other departments do. And so they are actually underneath the um, unjust scrutiny of an institution that gets kudos from them for being so excellent at the same time as trying to knock the knees and the legs from underneath them. Um, I think we had three different flyers. Did I show both of them, three, all three of them? There was the one about the nature walk with the Hero Nurturing Center. Um, oh, this was the other, that was one of them. And then the, um, this particular flyer. And then there's the one about the Cuba trip, which I, this is actually something we we're gonna talk about. We're gonna hold off on that one because that is a trip of Cuba, but it's not for Dr. Tony Vandermeer. This is related to Judith Foster. And so when she's rescheduled for the show, she can come in and talk about that because that's not until December. That's later on in the year. In the meantime, um, we talked about the mayor's um, coffee hour. I go to these meetings and my people, my people, I understand it's rough. And they don't always have these hearings at times. It's convenient if you have a job. And a lot of us have more than one job. And so, you know, more than one job and going to school. I want to give a shout out to all of the college and high school graduates. Woohoo! My daughter graduated from Northeast University, my alma mater. So we got two Huskies in the family with her master's degree. I'm currently going to get my doctorate in education, so I'll be a double Husky. All of you that have gone through COVID and everything else you had to do to be successful, I've got plenty of students that are graduating. You know people, celebrate them. Celebrate them now. Keep yourself safe. I thank you for being here with me this evening. I thank you for my phone callers, my viewers, and my listeners. Support BNN Media and support the Boston Media Producers Group. We are a coalition of producers and all forms of media fighting for the voice of democracy in our community. I thank you. Take care of yourself and each other. God bless you. See you next time. I have a problem every year around MLK Day because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for some reason has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest bigots in the United States Congress, he had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun every day. We rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, because we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running. It's time for some action. The preceding commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119. Attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.